Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Keith Best, and I'm the chair of the Wyndham Place Charlemagne Trust. Um, I'm going to start with those boring administrative uh, details. Um, I know you've all got... Uh, I'm sure you've all got one of these things. Uh, you don't have to turn them off these days, uh, but please do make sure they're on silent or vibration or whatever. Um, and, of course, the reason you don't need to turn them off is because this is being recorded, um, and hopefully there will be a podcast of it afterwards. And it means that if you want to tweet, then the, the uh, Twitter is, uh, the hashtag is uh, hash LSCCorbishly. Uh, so those of you who want to get the stuff out straight away and get it circulating, as I'm sure you will wish to, um, please, please do that. Um, then, obviously, after Connor's uh, said his remarks, uh, there will be a chance for, for questions. Um, I'm told uh, to remind you all that there is a drinks reception afterwards. Uh, I'm told to remind you of that because apparently there was one occasion when the uh, person chairing the meeting didn't remind people of the drinks reception and two people had to consume about 250 bottles of wine or, or, or something like that and, and that would be an unreasonable task to expect any of you to, to, to perform. Uh, definitely not. It's not my normal practice not to reveal there is a drinks reception until after the lecture precisely because of people like yourself if I may say so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, will, we will name anybody who leaves early. <laughs> don't, don't worry. We, we will mark your card. Um, well, first of all, I want to say what a great pleasure it is to, to be here. And uh, I'm delighted that the LSC and Wyndham Place Charlemagne Trust have uh, worked on this together and got this cooperation. It's a, a delightful venue. Uh, and also, what is particularly delightful is uh, something which I have to say is a fairly rare event at the Wyndham Place Charlemagne Trust uh, meetings, uh, to see so many young people here. And that really is a great pleasure indeed. And so you are the budding future lawyers and activists and you're the ones who are going to carry the torch forward. Uh, so, uh, you know, us old fogies uh, go into further dementia and retirement. Uh, you are the ones who will follow forward. And that I'm very pleased to, to see uh, in, indeed. Um, the talk tonight is by Conor Geerty, and who needs, I'm sure, in most of this audience, if not uh, exclusively the whole of the audience, uh, no introduction from me. But I'm going to bore you um, with it, just in case some of you don't know uh, how prestigious uh, and how privileged you are to actually be listening to uh, him tonight. Um, he is a graduate from University College Dublin before moving to Wolfson College, Cambridge, where he got both a Master's and a PhD. Uh, then he became Fellow of Emmanuel College in Cambridge uh, and then moved to the School of Law at King's College London where he was first a senior lecturer and ended up as a professor. And whilst there he was for seven years the director of the Centre for Study of Human Rights uh, and now as you all know uh, has a distinguished life here as the Professor of Law. 
He's a, a barrister, he practices, he's a member of Matrix Chambers, in fact a founder member of, of, of Matrix Chambers uh, as well. And if you think that that leaves him plenty of uh, spare time, be disabused of that notion by the fact that in addition to all that, he's a visiting professor at Boston University, the University of Richmond, the University of New South Wales, and the University of Sydney uh, as well. So he is an extraordinarily busy man, and I am therefore actually delighted that he's found the time to give this lecture uh, here tonight. It's a timely lecture. It's going to be, as you've all um, been made aware, uh, on the myths, illusions and lies that frankly infect the political engagement with human rights in, in Britain. I have seen some of this um, from my own past political uh, background and I think it is an extraordinarily sad moment where there is indeed in question uh, our very membership of the European Convention on Human Rights, our subscription to an international treaty uh, from which if we withdrew, and I'm not going to steal any of Connor's uh, uh, thunder on this, but if we were to withdraw, would put into question our membership of a variety of other international organisations uh, as well, let alone being an absolute delight for Mr Putin uh, to be able to say, well, if Britain doesn't subscribe to the Convention, then why should I? Uh, just to take one example... But I think what is interesting is that the debate isn't finalised on this. We're told there's going to be something in the uh, Conservative Party's manifesto uh, about it uh, and whether there should be a Bill of Rights or not. But, of course, what would that Bill of Rights contain? Uh, well, uh, it's interesting. If you talk to Dominic Grieve, the, the former Attorney General, who I rather fear lost his job because of his uh, outspoken views on, on this, this matter, um, he would say, well, yes, um, a Bill of Rights, he's not opposed to the idea of a Bill of Rights, but, of course, a Bill of Rights would not only have to encompass the whole of ECHR, but also might add things like the right to trial by jury, some of those other traditional British values on top of it. So rather than the diminution of the European Convention, it would actually be uh, an enhancement uh, of it, which is an interesting concept, which I think has probably um, not quite penetrated through to some of his uh, former colleagues in the Cabinet um, and some other Conservatives as well. But in any event, we are living in a dangerous age. I think it's sad that the public are fed with a whole load of uh, political half-truths about the whole thing. People forget that if it were not for Article 5, we wouldn't have had Millie Dowler and the phone hacking uh, exposure. Uh, the, the, you know, the, these things are principally there for the benefit of British citizens. Uh, they're not just there to stop um, people being deported to their country that they know little of and don't even speak the language after they've committed a crime. In, in this country. But I think, you know, and I hope Connor will, will, will touch upon this, the real xenophobia is that we don't want to be ruled by these unelected uh, foreign judges. Uh, both of which propositions are, of course, false, because, first of all, they are elected, and, and secondly, um, they're not entirely foreign anyway. Um, but that is the grist, I think that is the nub of the matter, uh, and it is very sad if we as a country retreat into that shell of self-satisfaction and chauvinism, which is only going to lead to a further diminution of our reputation abroad and, indeed, our influence abroad. But enough from me. You've not come here to hear me. You've come here to hear Connor and so I'm delighted Connor to pass the floor to you and thank you very much indeed once again for gracing us with your presence.
I'd just like to start uh, by, by welcoming uh, the, the, the old people. <laughs> I, I, thought they got, uh, I thought they got a very uh, frosty reception <laughs> from old person in chief here. So uh, I'm delighted you're all here, and long may you continue to live. Uh, long may you continue to live. Uh, Tom Corbishley was a Jesuit, and I think it's important to acknowledge that he was uh, a terrific intellectual and a, uh, an important figure in the foundation of Oxfam and Master of Campion, I think, wasn't it? Uh, Keith uh, Hall in Oxford, and a distinguished European. I was reading about him, wondering whether he'd like what I'm about to say, and I think on balance he probably would. Uh, it's a reasonably serious lecture, and I want to unpick seven fantasies that I think underpin quite a lot of the approach to this subject and explain it. And the final one is the one that I think gets to the nub of it. Interestingly, to some extent anticipated by Keith, who doesn't know what I'm going to say, but there's a complementarity there. Uh, and there'll be time for questions and so on uh, afterwards. Uh, my first encounter with the fantasies that underpin English public law came many years ago, in the 1980s. Uh, I had just started teaching, Keith mentioned this, constitutional law in uh, Cambridge University. And I was taking my first year students through this Oxford fellow called Dicey, about whom people were obsessed. The independent rule of law, the availability of remedies to all without fear or favour, uh, the common law's marvellous protection of civil liberties, uh, how great we were, how terrible the continent, and so on. Outside the classroom, striking minors were being routinely beaten up by the police, uh, picketing was being disrupted by roadblocks, uh, mass bail conditions were inhibiting protest, the campaign for nuclear disarmament uh, was having its marches banned and its protests inhibited by no-go areas that were arbitrarily erected by the police around those American bases into which it had been decided, not by cabinet, not by parliament, to move American nuclear missiles. Some of my students, I remember clearly, were even beaten up themselves uh, in a protest against education cuts, uh, much to their surprise, given what I'd been teaching them about the independent rule of law. Far from confronting any of this from the perspective of principle, the courts throughout were happy to act as a benign legitimating force. Their various rulings invariably serving to throw the necessary constitutional camouflage over successive exercises of raw state violence. I remember uh, Lord Lane saying that the fact that the bail conditions were stamped in advance of the hearing and that there were 17 persons in the dock might give his quote exactly the appearance of group justice. But on closer scrutiny, it was, of course, nothing of the sort. Uh, eventually, as those of us with uh, the long memories that come with age before the memory departs know, 
the judges overreach themselves even by the standards of their own day. Their absurd determination to prevent publication of a book, Spycatcher by Peter Wright, containing serious allegations of criminality against the security services, fell apart. Thanks partly to having been published in the United States, but mainly to the determination of a European Court of Human Rights to take freedom of expression more seriously than did the supposed guardians of liberty on the Strand. Uh, More on that court later. I have to, of course, acknowledge too, how could I not, the determined commitment of a succession of senior senior judges to keep Irish prisoners in jail for serious terrorist offences long after it was obvious to all other than these judges that the men and in some cases children children involved had been victims of serious miscarriages of justice. Uh, So bad were the courts in their determination to keep these people in jail that the government took to offering no evidence in case the courts would continue to trump up the basis for their continued incarceration. These various scandals brought the reckless partisanship of the senior judiciary to centre stage, where it could finally be seen and understood by all. The Dennings, the Diplocks, the Lanes, the Bridges, the Donaldsons were eventually exposed for all to see. So by the early 90s, the fantasies that I had found on arrival in England were in ruins, believed by almost no one, exposed as a construct founded on deceit. Now, as you will have seen by looking at the news on a daily basis, it is invariably easier to expose the iniquities of the past than it is to address the problems of today. Better to have an inquiry about something that happened 20 years ago than notice, for example, the shocking increase in suicides in jails today. Let's inquire into that in 20 years. The judiciary has remade itself in a way that has been undoubtedly successful. They are certainly not as they were in the 1980s. Uh, They are all men, more or less. They are all mainly from private schools, but they're not the aloof national servicemen bound by the Kilmuir rules to an extrajudicial amerta that removed them from all public discourse. That has changed. The first generation of judges after the catastrophes of the late 1980s, who proceeded with this makeover of the judiciary, took to human rights as their penance for past sins. And when they got the Human Rights Act, for which many of them quietly campaigned, they went about interpreting it, this is from 2000, in a way that has been beneficial. But these men, and some very few women, are now largely going or gone. In one case, very sadly, died Lord Bingham of Cornhill, a remarkable judicial figure. They're being replaced by a newer generation of senior figures whose pride in what they do seems untainted by any appearance of past wrong. And in their excitement at their success, not only are past wrongs being forgotten, 
but truths are being constructed in a way that bears striking resemblance to the past. This revival of fantasy is now reacting with the current political atmosphere in a way that threatens to produce a poisonous cocktail that could destroy modern England. Modern England. Modern England. I do not believe I exaggerate. That's why this lecture is not only about politics and not only about the European Convention on Human Rights, it's also about English judges. Who are these judges who are at a political front line that maybe they don't know exists? We can learn far more than we used to about how they see the world. There are many speeches and public lectures. The Kilmuir rules are long forgotten. The habits of certainty and decisiveness, so essential to adjudication, are not easily laid aside at the lectern when the judge approaches it. Perspectives are laid out not as tentative scholarly arguments, so much as as authoritative findings of fact. The president of the Supreme Court, David Neuberger, is understandably, as president, one of the more prolific speechmakers. And what I'm going to take you through are some of the speeches and books that judges are writing, which is a fairly new phenomenon, their engagement in public discourse in this way. Uh, he gave a talk, for example, at the Supreme Court of Victoria in Melbourne on the 8th of August this year. And this introduces us to what I will call of my seven fantasies, my first fantasy. It's the myth of Whiggish inexorability. That's a bit of a mouthful. Whig versions of history, for those of you who don't know about them, are everything's going to be fine because everything's moving along a trajectory which leads to perfection. The inexorability of progress. Whiggish inexorability. We learn from Lloyd Neuberger, for example, in this speech, quote, the history of human rights in the United Kingdom in the last 100 years can be divided into several periods. First, there is the Dark Ages, pre-1951, when Europe became, quote, sharply aware of the need for a strong, clear, and codified set of human rights, while we in Britain did not. Then there were the Middle Ages, between 1951 and 1966, when individuals were first allowed to take cases to the European Court of Human Rights. Then the years of transition, Lloyd Neuberger's words, between 1966 and implementation of the Human Rights Act, and then uh, that was the period during which, quote, human rights started to leak into the judicial cherubellum. Are you a classist, Keith, cherubellum? Mm. Correct pronunciation? I think so. Thank you. You're a polite chair. Depends whether you're Cambridge or Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> a throwback to an old past. Uh, and after this age of transition, Lord Nürburger identifies, and this is the point of it, the age of enlightenment today. Beware of people who think they live in an age of enlightenment. <laughs> There's nothing, I mean, I, I like this bloke, I don't, I haven't met him, this is not a personal thing, but there's nothing there about the European choice directly after the war being governed by politics and the fear of the left, which has been so convincingly demonstrated by recent scholarship. There's no nod even towards the decay of judicial standing in the 1980s in the United Kingdom that precipitated the move to rights. On Lord Nürburger's account, 
human rights has just sort of leaked into the judicial grey matter. And like all these triumphalist accounts of the past, the present is treated as a destination. Uh, we are, quote, still in the early days of our age of enlightenment, rather than just a brief moment on a journey to somewhere else. Now, Lord Neuberger, with others, is an exemplar of the second of the seven fantasies, which is the fantasy of the civil libertarian common law. This is one about which I have to say I feel rather strongly, for some reason. The 1980s are long forgotten. All other decades, probably because I've written a lot on the history of this, actually, all other decades are forgotten. Instead, we have, quote, there is no doubt that the common law was, in many ways, the origin and promoter of individual rights. Its only problem, apparently, was, and this is the reason for the turn to rights, quote from Lord Neuberger, it developed such rights in a somewhat haphazard and leisurely way. Well, that's one way to describe it. That's one way to describe it. Uh, the partisanship of the common law for property and contract over gender and racial equality. Those cases we remember of people from ethnic minorities being refused service and it being upheld as part of the common law's freedom of contract. What about the hostility to trade unions and even to the Labour Party, so extreme that without primary legislation they wouldn't have survived, the Labour Party wouldn't have survived without the Trade Union Act 1913, I think. What about the common law's service as a base for the serial abuses of liberty with which I began this lecture? Things like the bail conditions, the breach of the peace powers and so on were upheld as part of the common law. They're all written out of history as we have are asked to believe in this common law that's moving inexorably in its protection of liberty towards an age of enlightenment. Uh, in his recent, uh, beautifully written, uh, Hamlin Lectures, Lord Justice John Laws sings a hymn of praise to the common law. It's a superb, it's a superb exemplification of an approach to the Constitution which is rooted in the 1950s. He says, its distinctive methods have endowed the British state with profoundly beneficial effects. The recently retired Lord Chief Justice Igor Judge took a not dissimilar line in a recent lecture at University College London, where he defended the courts from executive interference against a background of unquestioned acceptance of the fact of the independence of judicial decision-making as an integral structure of the Constitution. Now, this revival of the myth, in my opinion, of the common law as a guardian of liberty, allied to this Whiggish commitment to progress, both of these are quite dangerous. Whose liberty? Whose liberty was being protected? This is the question that's not addressed. It's only one step from this position to say that actually the common law is so wonderful that it ought to have superiority over Parliament itself. A position once routinely held by judges in the pre-democratic age, of course, when they were doing the king's work, but which you might have thought had been laid to rest by democratic revolution.
In fact, that's not the case. At least some judges have allowed the enthusiasm of certain academic scholars, none, so far as I know, based at LSE, uh, for such a possibility, to lead them to what Lloyd Neuberger in his Melbourne speech calls the interesting point of whether courts can, in fact, overturn Parliament itself. A mini spate of cases in the Supreme Court, uh, and there's been a fascinating debate in the Supreme Court in the last six to eight months, where the Supreme Court, speaking now judicially and collectively, is actually rescuing the common law and, and relegating the human rights stuff and asking advocates to argue the common law over human rights. Uh, a mini spate of cases in the Supreme Court have even allowed the idea of the possibility of overturning Parliament to grow. Now, on any current account, the obstacles against such a judicial overriding of Parliament would need to be very high. I accept that. Some draconian flouting of the rule of law, or what Lord Nuremberger called, and even then calling it this in one of his speeches, he says it's only possible, there would need to be what he called exceptional circumstances. Perhaps these are what Lord Carswell in Jackson referred to in the context of a case involving the Parliament Acts, legislation that amounts to a fundamental disturbance of the building blocks of the Constitution. Well, if the judges were allowed veto legislation on the ground that it offended what they call the fundamental disturb the building blocks of the Constitution, we wouldn't have democracy. We wouldn't have female participation in public life. We wouldn't have trade unions. Because in each of the initiatives that was driven by Parliament, they would have been regarded as challenging the building blocks of the Constitution. Now, on to the Human Rights Act and my next fantasy. For those who don't know law, this requires a modicum of concentration, but not too much. Not too much. The Human Rights Act currently, this is correctly stated, supports parliamentary sovereignty by affirming it as a principle. Sections 3, subsection 2, section 4, subsection 6, section 6, subsection 2, you don't need to know any of that. The Human Rights Act goes out of its way to say Parliament is sovereign. That's well known to everybody except senior members of the current government. <laughs> they have engaged in the fantasy of judicial supremacism in the field of human rights law. It's a delusion does seem, I'm glad to say, restricted to the upper levels of the Conservative Party, uh, guided by advisers, no doubt, to invent a problem in order better to be able to curry favour with the electorate by dealing robustly with it. And now, little peroration here. The Prime Minister has had many opportunities in the last few years to demonstrate the importance of including law in the PPE curriculum in Oxford. And I think we're planning to have something like that too, and I hope we include law. Uh, if they're going to have to run the country perpetually, we should at least educate them a bit better. Uh, the lack of awareness of contempt of court laws, which nearly destroyed the trial of the people working with uh, Nigella Lawson, uh, Team Nigella, during a case. Uh, the hilarious denial that the European Union has a legal entitlement to British money, which is going to cause interest to be ratcheted up, uh, legal obligations are for other people. Uh, but the nadar, surely, was his apparent 
Was it contrived? Was it genuine? Belief that in implementing a declaration of incompatibility issued in respect of the sex abuse register, uh, the case itself was to give a modicum of due process to people on a sex abuse register uh, to give them a chance to petition to be taken off it and not have their lives destroyed by something which happened much earlier in their life, for example. He gave the impression that he was being forced to do it by the Human Rights Act and by the decision. The whole point of the Human Rights Act, as I'm glad to see my colleague uh, Francesca Tlug here made this point regularly, and I cite in my paper to a constitution committee in the House of Commons, the whole point of the Human Rights Act was that declarations of incompatibility of that sort issued by the courts do not have to be followed. So the honest thing to have done would have been to have rejected the court case, which he could have done. But he pretended it was a bit like the American Constitutional Court, that he had to act. Uh, Lady Hale, uh, unusual in three ways. One, is a woman. Two, went to a state school. Three, studied law. (laughs) Those three characteristics make her very unusual in the senior judiciary. She put it, she was in the case, with characteristically understated precision... Curiously, says Lady Hale in another speech, curiously, when introducing the order in Parliament, the Prime Minister was highly critical of our decision, but made no mention of the fact that the government could have chosen to do nothing about it. Now, the twist. Repeal of the Human Rights Act, a policy to which the Conservative Party appears now to be committed, might well produce exactly the judicial supremacism of which the Prime Minister complains. Most really strong attacks on the rule of law or on the building blocks of the Constitution would inevitably, in my opinion, also entail undermining, breaching one or other of the Convention rights. For example, if we got rid of legal aid altogether, uh, that would breach Article 6 if we, under the gold or an airy principles, if we decided to kick out all asylum seekers, didn't care whether they were going to be tortured abroad, we'd engage Article 3. What's the point? As things stand, judges could surely do nothing about such attacks, however fundamental they believe them to be, because of the explicit protection afforded Parliament when it comes to legislation violating human rights. Uh, Sections 3, 4 and 6 again. But abolish the Human Rights Act, take away the solicitude for human rights that is in that act, and you're handing, remembering what I said about the common law, you're handing the courts an opportunity to build a common law of human rights, which being separate from the Human Rights Act, which is now gone, does not have to submit itself to Parliament. The primary laws themselves might then become vulnerable. Now, this would be very, very odd. Action to end something that could never happen would only serve to bring it about. You might think that's a bit comic. The Irish did it. We did it exactly the same. We were so obsessed with the possibility that there might be abortion in our sainted country. We, although we had a profoundly unequivocal prohibition on abortion in an act of parliament, decided to put a constitutional protection in, the effect of which was to introduce abortion. It would be the same here. We're so terrified of Parliament being overturned by courts, we actually take action which makes it possible. 
abolishing something that isn't there creates it. In the social, as well as the earth sciences, two negatives make a positive. Now maybe you can inform us on this as your previous political complexion. Maybe the Conservative Party or the Tories genuinely don't care. Genuinely don't care. In modern politics, the spin is everything. That fantasy does rule. Uh, now you might be thinking, why is it going on with English judges? It might seem a little bit odd to be talking about, I'm calling them English judges, I'm not talking about Scottish judges, Northern Irish judges. Uh, since they've not at all been in the firing line in recent years, we know that. The executive and the popular press appear to have a finite capacity for populist indignation uh, against courts. And since the decision in the prisoner voting case of Hearst in the United Kingdom in 2005, most of that indignation has been headed out of town, away from the Royal Courts of Justice and towards Strasbourg. Now, true, there have been noisy periods of scepticism towards the European Court of Human Rights before. Uh, one thinks in particular of Ireland's taking uh, England, the United Kingdom to the Strasbourg Court for allegations of torture, which produced an inhuman and degrading treatment ruling. I think in particular, too, of the Gibraltar case. Uh, so we've had some of this before. But nothing has been as sustained or as vehement as the head of steam that has been built up over this, it has to be said, relatively minor issue of prisoner voting. Now, it's true, it's true, the litigant was not ideal. It was not ideal. Uh, an axe-wielding killer uh, celebrating his win uh, with champagne as he pours YouTube abuse on the authorities was uh, something of a low point even in the world of unsavoury human rights defendants. I will accept that. I will accept that. Uh, the, the Telegraph, of course, has the, the tip. And it was unlucky while he smokes marijuana. Uh, it was actually unlucky of Strasbourg that they were left holding this particular package when the music stopped. Uh, the local courts had avoided trouble by refusing to find a human rights violation in the case when it came before them. So the uh, British judges dodged the bullet, leaving it to Strasbourg. In a decision I criticised at the time and I think was wrong, actually. Uh, how has it escalated? Well, that's for sociologists, psychologists, political scientists. But one of its more remarkable features, and a reflection on the weird times we live in, is that this case has produced a myth to which it is its own refutation. The myth is Strasbourg supremacism. The refutation is the case itself. Strasbourg supremacism, our fourth fantasy, what Lord Roger of Earlsferry uh, famously put it, showing off a little bit, and I'd say repenting at leisure, I'll rely on my classically educated chair, an argentoratum locutum judicium finitum. Uh, Keith, is, <laughs> Keith has already translated it. Uh, Strasbourg has spoken, the case is closed. Uh, but if this were true, Strasbourg has spoken, the case is closed, prisoners would now be voting. Not only are they not voting, the Supreme Court has itself specifically refused even to issue a declaration of incompatibility to put pressure on the government 
to allow them to vote. And I think, I haven't read it, but I think there's a case which says they don't even get damages, a Strasbourg case. Now, the obligations under the European Convention and the Council of Europe, that is the parent body of the Convention, are international, not domestic. Our legal system does not require their implementation immediately or indeed ever, our legal system. So, of course, adherence to international law is an important matter. Uh, It has many repercussions. You know, the United Kingdom might find it harder to tell Mr. Putin uh, what to do, uh, or or Syria, or preferably a smaller place that the Americans don't like as well. We could invade that one. Uh, It might find itself in a bit of trouble at the Council of Europe. Uh, The UK judge might end up lunching alone. There's all sorts of things that can happen. Uh, But none of these are legal in the domestic sense. So the Hearst case shows that what it stands for is a fantasy, the fantasy of Strasbourg supremacism. The extraordinary way in which our public culture has been mustered to savage the Strasbourg court is one of the dismal wonders of our politically constricted age. That court, I had anticipated this when I talked about the Sunday Times case, uh, or no, when I talked about the, the earlier case, the Spycatcher case, which is Sunday Times and Observer and Independent, that court has rescued the fabulous English common law from itself on far more occasions than it has made itself an unnecessary nuisance. Maltreatment of gays, purely on account of their sexual orientation, corporal punishment in schools and in some courts, inhuman and degrading treatment of, deter- of internees, deliberate shooting of suspected terrorists, draconian contempt laws that prevented a campaigning newspaper from fighting for justice for thalidomide victims, long periods of of detention without trial, shocking deprivations of privacy. Anybody who thinks the common law is great, have a look at Kay and Robertson in sports newspapers. A sick man photographed in a hospital bed by some dreadful so-called newspaper. No protection the great common law, all of this unnoticed by the common law's supposed celebration of individual rights, not leaking into the judicial cerebellum, so much as being rammed into it by continental judges in the teeth of domestic opposition. Now, often, of course, this opposition has been led by politicians. I can, under, I can understand that. Uh, it's not fun to have your discretion constrained by any court, uh, not least a foreign court, and, of course, Strasbourg won't answer back. The politicians long realised the virtues of abusing organisations that don't answer back. Uh, and so the poor old Strasbourg judges don't answer back, although every now and again they're beginning to. And, uh, uh, the, uh, and, and local judges have wised up a bit. At least politicians have the excuse they need votes. And therefore they have to please the male, uh, potential UKIP voters and others who, for various reasons, are disinclined to look at these facts honestly. What excuses, this is opening a new theme, what excuses do British judges and former judges have for their attacks on the European Court of Human Rights? They're not running for election, so far as I know. There is a long, I wouldn't say venerable, tradition here of British mistrust of what Strasbourg does. Their distinguished lawyer, F.A. Mann, once gave a revealing expression to it in a note in the Law Quarterly Review where he inveighed against the majority judges in the leading Strasbourg case on contempt of court that I mentioned, not on the basis of what they said, but on the 
puny countries from which they came. Where were they when we were fighting? Where were they when we were fighting? Therefore, uh, in the politer 1990s, the chastened judges were a bit uh, rebuilding their reputation. They just were more puzzled by Strasbourg. And the argument, of course, was to have the Human Rights Act in order to be able to anticipate Strasbourg. But now, we seem to have entered a new era of vulgarity. Maybe it's this confidence in the common law, judicial supremacism, I don't know. Lord Hoffman started it. Uh, He he made a famous speech in 2009 uh, to the Judicial Studies Board on the universality of human rights, in which he paraded a startlingly ridiculous set of remarks by a dissenting judge in the Saunders case, uh, as though they were typical of agreed interventions by a unanimous grand chamber. Uh, He didn't choose, by the way, the lampoonable reactionary Gerald Fitzmaurice, the first judge on the English on the court from Britain, about whom very funny things could have been said. In the printed version of this paper, I give a long extract from his defence of being beaten up at school on the basis that it did no harm to him, his words proving that it must have done or there must be some other reason for him. <laughs> Former Lord Chief Justice Lord Judge gave an interview in Cancer magazine, which was sufficiently forthright to receive the doubtful accolade of the following Daily Mail headline. Human rights court is threat to democracy. Ex-Lord Chief Justice blasts unelected Strasbourg judges. Unelected Strasbourg justices. There's another fantasy here, uh, the fifth, that of the neutral judge. The convention that he or she stands above the eddies and flows of the political. No doubt Lord Judge believed that he was making an apolitical point when he wrote of the supremacy of Parliament and of the need for judges not to get involved in political questions. But saying as much these days is in itself a political intervention. Lord Sumption uh, manoeuvred himself into exactly the same position. He's on the Supreme Court. Uh, in his F.A. Mann lecture, same guy again, on judicial and political decision-making in 2011, shortly before he took up his position as a Supreme Court judge. He attacked the tendency of the Strasbourg Court to develop its jurisprudence across all 47 member states in a way which conflicted, quote, with some very basic principles upon which human societies are organised. His view grew out of his belief that the Strasbourg jurisprudence had got out of control, with its, quote, large number of derivative sub-principles and rules addressing the internal arrangements of contracting states in great detail. But calling for the court to pull back is in itself a political intervention. The conservative strategy document echoes this in calling for the court to disown its development of rights over time. Uh, This mimics the American emphasis on original intent, which was dreamt up by Ed Meese, Reagan's uh, Attorney General, and supported by anti-federalists and the Christian right as a way of providing scholarly cover for the forced retreat of the US federal government on the one hand, and for overturning the celebrated abortion decision of Roe versus Wade on the other. Going back to basics is not apolitical, it's political. In seeming, through their argument, 
to eschew the world of politics, both Lord Judge and Lord Sumption, in fact, enter that world. Their conservative position, disguised as neutral by the judicial garb one has taken off and the other was about to put on. Second last fantasy. We're nearly there. A subset of this fantasy of Strasbourg supremacism, encouraged by Lord Rogers' ill-advised plunge into Latin, is that Strasbourg cases are required to be followed by British courts. Now, every first-year law student knows, or they will know after my lectures, but they probably even know now from A-level, this is simply not the case. The Human Rights Act could not have been clearer in Section 2 when it required of the judicial authorities interpreting the Act that they take into account such jurisprudence. No further requirement to, in the English common law sense, follow such decisions appears in the Act. Now, it's perfectly true the courts have tended to support Strasbourg decisions. Lord Bingham's Muir principle, they call it. On the, I have to say, very sensible basis that it's wise to keep in tune with a body to which your own litigants, or at least the non-governmental ones, uh, can appeal. Never invariable, that Mirror principle has loosened up of late, with the courts treating the Strasbourg menu as if not quite a la carte, then at least one from which there is a decent choice, including, if needs be, a house special grown entirely from British produce. Strasbourg has actually, on the whole, gone along with this. Every now and again, it's, it's conceded some positions to keep the peace. Uh, it's revisited its case law after it's read the Lord's judgments, Supreme Court judgments. It's even like when it's been particularly silly, it's put its hands up and said, look, we're terribly sorry, we got that messed up. This is what informed observers call dialogue. It is not dictatorship. Now, this fantasy, when it's articulated, produces contradiction. The Conservative Party's recent uh, weird set of proposals uh, for, quote, changing Britain's human rights law was full of invective against the Strasbourg Court, and this led its authors to conclude that the Human Rights Act needed to go. Not Strasbourg. Why the Human Rights Act? The crime, apparently, is Strasbourg problematic jurisprudence, Strasbourg rubbish, is getting into our law, quote, often being applied, and this has to stop. Often being applied, but then a bit later on, it's Strasbourg is creating legal precedent in the UK. Oops, a little bit of a lie there. Is it often or always? Which is it? The paper appears to believe both at the same time. If Section 2 did not already exist, it would be produced as the solution to the problem, Strasbourg supremacy, that is simply not there. Or at least not there in our domestic human rights law. I end the seventh and largest fantasy of all, the fantasy that drives all the others on this little island, or accurately this little bit of this little island, and it's the only reason I can find for what would otherwise be incomprehensible. Now, Lord Neuberger, who have been a bit hard on, he got it spot on in a Cambridge lecture in February this year. This is what he said. The loss of the empire and the loss of world premier legal status has inevitably caused problems to the national psyche. 
And that, he said, it is therefore understandable that a, quote, transformation from a global preeminent status to just one of many EU or council members requires an almost superhuman attitudinal adjustment. An almost superhuman attitudinal adjustment. It's not one that some have been able to make. Especially those, it seems, whose entire education has never required departure from the quads, cloisters and colleges of past glory or any kind of mustering in with what the England known to the other 90%. The Conservative Party increasingly gives the impression that the act of union with Scotland was the beginning of an heroic age, an heroic English age of imperialism, to which we can now return, the people cheering from the sidelines as they did when Disraeli paraded Victoria as Empress of India. Down that route is a provincial backwater peopled by well-educated fools shouting loudly. No judge, past or present, should be encouraging this fantasy of English exceptionalism, especially now as it gathers such populist steam. Thank you very much. Well, I knew you were going to be provoked, and you have been, and that's great. And I hope that that is going to provoke you to asking lots of interesting questions. Uh, So who is going to be the first who I spot, or are you all so numbed into a sense of admiration and uh, disbelief? at your prejudices being challenged in such a way. Yes, I was going to take them in threes if um, I see... Well, I'll take the first one there, and thank you. Can you just wait for the microphone? And when you, um, when you speak, could you be kind enough to tell us who you are and what, if any, organisation you represent? Uh, my name is Colin Lowe, and uh, I'm a member of the House of Lords, I don't know if I represent it, but I'm a, a, member, a member of it. Uh, thank you for a most stimulating lecture. I'm in no way familiar uh, w- with all the jurisprudence that, uh, of, w- of which you've been so, so critical. Um, but I, I, just, I just have the impression, as a, a mere uh, bystander and observer, that actually the... The British courts, of which you've been so critical, have been a bit of a roadblock, as well as Strasbourg, to home secretaries getting their way to deport people that they find disagreeable and so on. Thank you very much. Is there another one immediately, or shall I pass that to, I think, whilst they're summoning their thoughts... So would you like to Uh, answer that? uh, Colin, it's a good corrective, actually, to what I was saying. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're you're selecting a certain record, and I would never go so far as to say that the record is unrelentingly bad. And there are cases where the government has been held to account uh, which are independent of Strasbourg. So uh, 
there certainly have been good examples in the development of judicial review which have constrained government in a way that they would not have been constrained in the absence of action by the British courts, and there are lots of examples. I agree with you. The uh, impact of the human rights stuff in the, in, the, in the late 90s and early parts of the last decade was to orient a lot of that jurisprudence along human rights terms, and I think it certainly empowered the judges to feel a bit more robust in their protection of liberty, and it also broadened the range of freedoms that were to be protected. So it provided a sort of ethical infusion into the common law, uh, and that's why I'm a bit concerned about the reversion to the common law that we see going on at the moment in the courts, that it might be a little bit of a backward move. But I, I think the remark I would accept. I'm going to, whilst you're summoning your thoughts, um, ask a question. I mean, one of the propositions that's been put forward is uh, in order to ensure parliamentary supremacy that all judgments of Strasbourg should be subject to some form of ratification by Parliament. Uh, you've already made the point that, um, in, in effect, uh, the decisions of Strasbourg are not binding legally as such on the British courts. They are there for the courts to take into account in whatever way they choose to, to do so. Uh, but uh, as, as you were indicating these anomalies and how sometimes um, if you change things or if, if you, if you uh, tilt at windmills, suddenly the windmill that wasn't there exists. Um, do you not feel that if, if that was the case, that in some way it would give the judgments of Strasbourg a greater legitimacy than they presently enjoy uh, under, under the present um, European Convention? Well, you could just imagine a situation in 47 countries where interventions by the European Court of Human Rights were provisional proposals to be decided upon by assemblies which, to a greater or less extent, democratic, you might as well pull out of the whole system, really. I mean, can you imagine what the Russians or the Turks would do when it's cases involving Chechnya and, for example, uh, the Kurds? Uh, there'd be issues of an a la carte that would collapse the whole system. Uh, so that, I think, would be a disaster. You may remember some few. There was an estimable minister in the Conservative Party called Ken Clark, who's been sacked recently, and he was trying to fight off the obsessions about Strasbourg, and he produced uh, something which he pushed for called the Brighton Declaration. It's now not even available on the government's own website. Uh, it was a big effort to try and, as it were, tame Strasbourg. It was a nice smokescreen. Uh, but it did produce some changes, including a commitment to what's called subsidiarity uh, in the preamble to the convention. Uh, one thing that I find quite ominous is a development in the same spirit, which is this. Uh, slightly technical legal point. Judgments of the European Court of Human Rights fall to be executed by member states, and then there's a committee of ministers from the Council of Europe that oversees it. And so every six months or whatever it is, they meet and they say, has England, Britain done this? Has Poland done that? And uh, if two-thirds of the countries are unhappy about the implementation, they can refer it back to the European Court of Human Rights. So that's a way of deepening the commitment to implementation. The trouble is, it's a political engagement. So what happens if a referral back is blocked by one-third plus one of the member states? Well, then, what is the authority of a judgment which has not been implemented and which will not be referred back to the European Court of Human Rights? 
So there might be a way in which the mechanisms within Strasbourg already are diluting the power of implementation, and that will be very worrying. Strasbourg itself is kind of anxious, I think, about the extent to which, not Britain so much, other countries are using Britain's scepticism as a way of redesigning their relationship with Strasbourg. Uh, Hungary, Poland in recent years, Russia, most obviously. Right, I've got a gentleman here and then one in the, in, in the balcony. Uh, my name is Brian Crowe. I re- represent no one except myself, but I'm a former diplomat. You, this is really for clarification. I'm not coming down on any particular side, but just to understand what you're saying. You use the prisoner's right to vote as an example. There's another example that's grabbed public attention, and that is the right to family life, which as I understand it is enshrined in the, in the European Convention. But I think I'm also right in saying that the English courts have used that right in order to prevent the deportation of highly undesirable characters uh, at enormous expense to the taxpayer and in flagrant disregard for what most of the public thinks is the right thing to do. Is that, is that, are those judgments of the English courts, of the European Court of Strasbourg, and what, if any, is the right of the, does the government have to override that, since they've sig- signally failed to do so if they had that right? Mm-hmm. Thank you. And, and the gentleman up there? Um, oh, my name and, is... And I've got, good, I've got a lady. <laughs> Excellent. So we'll do them in three. So you, sir, and then, and, and, and then the lady there. Uh, my name is Anthony Canelli. I'm a student at the LSE. Uh, I just have a question for Professor Geerty. I was wondering if he could... Um, comment on what effect the repeal of the Human Rights Act might have on the peace process in Northern Ireland? Right. Hi, I'm B. Symington. I'm from a social enterprise called Renacy. Um Apologies, this isn't strictly a legal question, because um, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I was just wondering what you thought the left should do to defend the Convention of Human Rights, and if you think they'll do it in an election year. Okay, three... Disparate, but very interesting questions. Yeah, thanks very much. I'll take uh, Brian first of all, I think. Uh, the, the devil here, Brian, is very much in the, in the detail, actually. And uh, you may remember some, was it two or three years ago, uh, Therese, Theresa May produced the story about the cat, the Ecuadorian cat. And if it was Ecuador, Bolivia, Brazil, uh, Brazil, Brazil, whatever. So, and you couldn't make it up, she said, having just made it up. <laughs> uh, and I, I read the judgment to see what was going on. And there had been uh, governmental guidelines that had been departed from by the government. And there were a whole series of facts which led the court to regard this as an appropriate case in which not to order expulsion. And the cat figured merely as a background detail about the extent to which the individual had settled in Britain, but in the hands of reckless advisers, it became evidence of the lampoonable awfulness of court cases, from which we deduce serious people read first before they lash out, you know, on that one. On the broader point behind it, uh, it's not a right to family life, it's a right to respect for family life, and it's also conditioned by a number of exceptions that are to be found in subparagraph two of the Convention. And the judgments tend, and that is a European invention, you know, I mean, the, the privacy stuff has come in through the convention, so it's not an example of something which duplicates past law. Uh, the judgments tend to be pretty nuanced and uh, rarely finding respect for family life as enough in itself. They're quite harsh judgments of people expelled, notwithstanding clear catastrophic consequences for their families, uh, which is different than, for example, 
uh, where there's the threat of inhuman or degrading treatment or uh, the threat of torture abroad. So those cases are treated in a different way. The House of Lords, uh, as it then was, responsible for extending this in a case called EM in Lebanon, where they really couldn't face the prospect of an individual's family being separated by being sent back to a country where there would be certain consequences, which, though not torture, would have been awful. So there has been case law where judges have responded to the compassionate facts before them, and they they have allowed openings that are there, but they're, they're not as broadly used as, for example, is often believed, I think. On Anthony's point... Uh, it really, one of the more remarkable features, and it's why I put in right at the end of my talk about, about Scotland, actually, the Conservative strategy document is, is shocking in its lack of interest or respect for the, the nations, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. It's quite incredible how they're sort of, right at the end, they say, and uh, no doubt Scotland will be consulted about our decision. Uh, and specifically on Northern Ireland, I genuinely think they hadn't ever occurred to them that the Good Friday commit, uh, Agreement committed both the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom to the European Convention on Human Rights, and that the Irish uh, enacted the European Convention on Human Rights Act of 2003, pursuant to its obligations under the Good Friday Agreement, uh, notwithstanding that they already had a written constitution, and that it was a fundamental part of the, uh, of the acceptance by the nationalist community in Northern Ireland of the peace agreement. I don't think they even know. I think it's a matter of complete unimportance to them, to be honest with you. It's unbelievable. Northern Ireland's barely mentioned. On the left, there's an interesting piece that Francesca sent me today about defending rights from the left, and it's, it's a fascinating one because the left used to be, of course, very hostile to rights, and I was very hostile to rights, and it, they were hostile also to Europe. And then if you remember Mr. Delors, Mr. Delors is responsible for converting the left to rights. And uh, it's also part of the shallowness of left discussion. I remember nearly, I think it was 10 years ago now, actually, I did the Hamlin Lectures in this very hall, and somebody from up there said, you want to turn everything into rights. Uh, why can't we develop a critique which is not rights-based? It was this, and, and the answer is, actually, there, there is not a very successful alternative languages at the moment that are as persuasive. And so the left turns to rights, and on the whole has been broadly... Uh, happy with how they've been able to deploy rights as a way of resisting uh, the growing inequality that you find in society. But of course, this is where the old left speaks. It's very qualified and it's done disarmingly little to deal with the shocking disparities in wealth in this country and the impact of so-called austerity on the poor, etc. There are some haunting cases uh, where things like the bedroom tax and so on are being challenged and they're not succeeding. So there are limits to this language, but the language has been more useful than not to the left in these uh, difficult times. Brendan, and then a lady here I saw there, and then this gentleman. Thank you. Yes, I'm Brendan Donnelly. I'm the director of the Federal Trust. Could I talk a bit further about um, Lord Newberger's remarks um, about Britain and England in particular needing to emancipate itself from the glories of its past? I'd agree that the law is one example of of this um, uh, English exceptionalism, which is a politically broader phenomenon than just that. Um, But isn't it quite extraordinary that 
Um, as we get further away from the time when there was this marvellous British Empire, we become more enamoured of it. Um, as it happened, although I didn't know him very well, I was at university with um, Neuberger. Um, uh, the thought that so many years later we could be still talking about Britain's or England's need to emancipate itself from its imperial past, which even at that stage wasn't exactly yesterday, seems to me quite extraordinary. Why is it that there's been this renaissance, if you like? The further we get away from it, the more obsessed we are with it. Yes. Yes, hi. Uh, I'm Ismaili Katsaduri. I'm from the London School of Business and Management. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you didn't mention anything about the Human Rights Act uh, 1998, which is part of our constitution. And what would happen to that with the, our departure of the, from the European Convention of Human Rights? This is a constitutional act. And also, a second part of my question is the European Union uh, also requires us to be, to be a member of the European Convention of Human Rights. Uh, so what is your view on those two? Uh, I know the government hasn't said anything uh, and hasn't, has kept silent of the consequences of departure of the European Convention on Human Rights. And uh, what is your view on that? Thank you. It's just coming, the microphone. Charles Jenkins, a journalist. Um, I just wanted... You did mention that the, the Strasbourg court uh, sometimes said that we got it wrong. And I just wondered, are there, what are the main examples that you might think of where the Strasbourg court has got it wrong, whether or not it's said sorry or not later? Uh, shall I deal with those two? Please. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I'll, I'll deal with them this uh, first and then Charles and then perhaps Andrew Bryant is the general one. Uh, the Human Rights Act 1998 is, in the mind of maybe somebody like John Laws, who is a judge in the Court of Appeal, a constitutional act, but I still am old-fashioned enough to think that it's just an act of parliament, basically. And so is the European Communities Act 1972. And... Uh, one of the wonders of British democracy is that an act is only as good as its current power and could be repealed tomorrow. And I think there is no problem constitutionally with the Human Rights Act Amendment Act. And I'm glad there isn't. I think uh, we, we shouldn't entrench laws. We should have a healthy debate about whether we need them. And therefore, uh, it's, it's not invulnerable in the way the word constitution suggests. Uh, What's extraordinary about the Conservative Party document is it, it's afraid of following its own logic, which is to uh, withdraw from the Council of Europe. It seems obvious as anything. I mean, if anything, they're happier than they were with the English judges, and uh, they could deal with the mischief immediately by withdrawing. But clearly, government is always speaking with different voices, and uh, certainly with uh, William Hague, the government enjoyed pushing a human rights agenda around the world, and uh, it, I suppose, didn't want to have the blatancy of its own double standards exposed by withdrawing from the one uh, international agreement to which it was exhorting everybody else to belong. So I think there was probably a bit of uh, uncertainty on the part of the foreign ministry about this plunge. Uh, it's open, I think, as to whether you'd have to leave the European Union. I'm not entirely sure, but you'd certainly have the immediate problem of the charter, the European Union charter. And you'd have the problem of the common constitutional principles that uh, apply through the European Court of Justice far more directly than they do into, uh, through the Convention. So the logic of withdrawing from the Council and of repealing the Human Rights Act would lead inevitably, the logic, 
to withdrawing from the European Union because you can't have rights imposed by another bunch of foreign judges. So it, it has a certain momentum behind it. Uh, perhaps I will go to Brendan next because it fits, I think, well. I'm really interested in this mystery. And uh, is it because, in a way, Britain's power is so blatantly less than it was even a short while ago? I'm not sure. But take the way in which European countries seem to react now to Britain, whether we blame Mr Cameron, as Juncker does, perhaps Mr Juncker does slightly unfairly for not getting on with people. But its power seems to have declined. And its American connection, which you put an awful lot of stay by, has no longer seemed to matter. Mr. Obama doesn't even seem to pretend that it's a unique and special relationship. And it's not so long ago that we went to war in order to keep in with the American president. You know, so that's quite recent. Uh, so partly, I think it's, it's the sense of power drifting away has pushed people back into a nostalgia, which they hope to realise in the present. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of nonsensical position, but one which is understandable as not facing the truth. And then, of course, we have, to, we have to confront the limited worlds from which these people come. Who are these people who care about this? Well, they are all from a tiny community that reinforces itself. They're all from certain schools. They're all from certain universities. They're from certain walks of life. And you do wonder, certainly the people in the schools my kids went to, this is meaningless, meaningless to them, this nostalgic Britain of the great common law. But no prime ministers have effigies in their libraries, you know. So I think there must be such a burden in that kind of so-called privileged upbringing. And then maybe that translates itself into certain assumptions about the world, which, when you have power, feed into actions which seem to suggest a nostalgia of the type you've described. But I'm just gabbling, because I don't know. But it's fascinating, the point you make. Lord Newberger is by far, you know, he's a good man. And I think I was using some quotes... But he is clearly, as the last court showed, somebody who's alive to the reality of British positioning at the moment. Uh, the one, my favourite one, uh, Charles, court case they got wrong, was a case called Osman, where they didn't understand tort law. And uh, they produced a decision which was derided by everybody, uh, mainly, I have to say, including myself. And then in a case called Zed, they recanted really. They recanted, and uh, they sort of basically pulled back. And uh, that's one. Uh, they nearly produced a decision on air uh, noise in Heathrow, which would have been silly. But the Grand Chamber, which is now a sort of court of appeal within the convention system, has uh, saved them from that. Uh, more recently, interestingly, they've been actually following uh, British cases. The case, a really outrageous case, called Austin where the British invented an exception to the right to liberty to allow the police to keep kettling people. Uh, and it simply isn't there, you know. And when Strasbourg got the case, they said, well, they're right. It's sort of implied in Article 5 that you're allowed whole people where there's an awful lot of people around and there might be a little bit of difficulty. So that was rather ominous. And then there's a case where by 10 to 9, they changed their view, let's face it. They changed their view on political advertising after a case from the House of Lords. So there's... there's there's quite a few where they think they've made a mistake or where they've fallen into line with Britain. But the most extreme one, where they reversed themselves in a sort of slightly humiliating way, was the case of Osman, which did them no good at all in this country among judges because it was obvious they didn't understand tort and was bad from that point of view. 
Thank you. Uh, gentleman there, then uh, one there, and Stuart, yes, you Thank you. Uh, Evan Harris. Um, I don't represent anyone, but I was a former uh, Liberal Democrat parliamentarian. I recognise you, Evan. I'm sorry. Keith, and uh, I'm board member of Article 19, and, and I'm campaign director of Hacked Off. And it's a, I just wanted to ask, Connor, what, what makes Britain so unique in this? The right-wing parties, generally speaking, in other parts of Europe don't take this approach, nor do... If you look back at what Jack Straw did or didn't do in the late 2000s to defend the Human Rights Act in Hearst, um, does the left is so, um, so equivocal on it? And I was wondering whether I can invite him to say more about the newspapers, because whether it's an anti-Europeanism, which they confuse with the EU, with the ECHR, or whether it's, except for their own rights, they just don't like the idea of other people having rights, whether it is that and not just the power of the press to the public, but their access to politicians, these five men, Rothermere, Dacre, Murdoch, Desmond, I guess, and, and one of the Barclays, whichever one it is. Um, is that a factor, or is it? do you just blame the politicians, which might be seen as easy? Thanks, Evan. Uh, yes. Uh, Aaron Jemman, <clears throat> sorry, a student at the LSE. Um, in regards to the um, European Convention of Human Rights, do you believe that, I mean, we have like certain opt-out clauses, that are like such an Article 5 in controversial areas such as, um, sorry, controversial areas such as extraordinary rendition, do you believe that these, these opt-out clauses undermine it in its kind of overall purpose, or is just a way of expressing our kind of like national autonomy and allowing us to kind of like, what you were saying in kind of um, Section 2, allowing us to... Recognise our own sovereignty. Stuart. <clears throat> Stuart Wheeler, on this coming Monday, the coalition government will ask the House of Commons to vote to opt back into the European arrest warrant. The European arrest warrant enables any other member of the European Union to allege that one of our citizens has committed a crime and without providing a shred of evidence to insist that that citizen be sent abroad where he or she may have to wait in appalling conditions for a year or more before the trial. Should that be or is it against the European Convention on Human Rights? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I, I wrote... Uh, a book last year, as Stuart, called Liberty and Security, where uh, I undoubtedly, I mean, I acknowledge there are these shocking abuses of human rights that can be committed. And you think about, uh, occasionally, people who are quite powerful are subjected to these processes. And at those points in time, they are correctly inclined to deploy the language of human rights to defend themselves, and should. And so if you see individuals who are about to be deported to America, for example, to face horrific punishment for small things like uh, the individual who was doing the hacking, if you remember him, what was his name? Do you remember what his name was? Uh, anyway, do you remember the one? He, he, the, the Home Secretary holds back on sending him back. And so I'm absolutely in favour of uh, McKinnon, I think was his name, Gary McKinnon. Gary, Gary. Uh, of the fair deployment of these laws across 
whoever the people are and whatever they're being subject to. The trouble is, when the McKinnon case was decided, just shortly before that, there was, an, uh, uh, there was a suspected terrorist who'd been sent back to the United States, and the European Court of Human Rights had upheld this return, as had the British courts. And his brother came to one of the talks I was doing, and he made this impassioned intervention about how come my brother is being sent back and then the Home Secretary recovers her interest in rights for Gary McKinnon. And, of course, what was barely concealed, he's a courteous man who didn't say it, there's a difference between his brother, Bahamusa, I think was his name, and, and Gary McKinnon. And so we need to be absolutely clear that these rights belong to everybody. They belong to rich people uh, as well as poor people, but they have to belong to poor people. And the book I mentioned is, called, is about how selective our protection of rights are. And part of the bit of my talk of the common law was it was selective. For some people it was fantastic, but for others it wasn't. So that, on that, I would say it's a lively question, and I'm totally in favour that people should not be subjected to such monstrous treatment uh, merely because of some European dictate. You know? And that's partly why Europe developed uh, general principles of human rights law in its courts, to try and protect people. Uh, Aaron, I, I, I think the balance... I basically think the balancing in human rights is between human rights law and national sovereignty. And I'm a believer in countries. And I'm a believer in democratic systems. And therefore, I don't believe in these absolute rights. There's one or two exceptions. I think basically, however we define torture, if it's torture, it shouldn't happen, etc. But there's quite a lot of exceptions built into the human rights thing itself. And these exceptions include... Article 15, which allows exceptions and derogations in arenas of emergency. It allows reservations. And so, say, take Lord Hoffman's idea, which was that we need to be a bit more sensitive to nations. Well, the European Court of Human Rights already is. The Convention already is. There's a, a reference to subsidiarity now in the preamble, as I said. So it's, it's about acknowledging the role of rights and respecting the role of the country. And the balance includes conceding to countries from time to time. So I don't see it as subversive of the rights... A framework. I believe it's vindicating the rights framework. I'll leave Evan's point till the end. I, the European thing can be very controversial in other countries as well. You know, I mean, I think about Ireland, you know, where it became, it was the, the way in which abortion was going to be made compulsory, you know. And, so, and, and the European Union, this treaty and that treaty and so on. And there's always some protocol number 117, which is a declaration which is saying to the Irish, please don't vote it down because we're not going to introduce compulsory abortion. You know, so there's... there's there is political anger in various countries producing in different ways pressure on the convention system. Uh, I completely agree about the impact of newspapers, and I'll say two reasons why the Human Rights Act was embattled. Two reasons. One, and I do blame politicians, it's a very rare thing to enact a law and then before it's even implemented, the 2nd of October 2000, the law is enacted in the 9th of November 1998, the Human Rights Act, before it's even implemented, the government's beginning to subvert it. And if you remember Lord Williams finally persuading the government to agree the implementation, by even October 2000, the then Home Secretary Jack Straw was beginning to repent this intervention. And this is an act that's not had the support of its, of its promoting government. And that's most unusual. Normally, governments, when they enact legislation, will defend it. 
But they joined the critics from the start, and there were early cases on planning and so on where the ministers were leaping in with criticisms. That was terrible for the human rights thing. And then when Lord Faulkner began to get his act together and they began to produce documents, it was too late. So that was a major factor. The other, definitely, the newspapers. The newspapers were persuaded to support the Human Rights Act because they were told about Article 10, the right to freedom of expression. They were very excited about it, and they thought they'd be able to publish lots of things. Then, during the passage of the Human Rights Bill, uh, somebody notices Article 8, the right to respect for privacy. Uh, they have an absolute shouting match in the Cabinet, I think, I gather, between Lord Irving and poor old Chris Smith. And it turned out there was something called privacy in this bloody thing as well. So they sent in Lord Wakeham, who was their shop steward in the House of Lords, uh, and he tried to get an exception. It's one of the most hilarious. An exception to the Human Rights Bill, which was the human rights thing shall not apply to powerful newspapers. Because they saw the risk to their commercial interest, which commercial interest is basically gossip. And then, this is funny, they, to assuage the newspapers, put in a special section, section 12 I think it was or something, which was, if we're going to stop you publishing your filthy story, we will think very carefully before we do it. <laughs> Along comes some old guy, uh, what's his name? Douglas, the fellow, you know, the man who married the Welsh woman. And they have, they have a wedding, they have a wedding which they sell to Hello magazine, uh, or OK magazine, or Yippee magazine, or something. And everybody has to be searched going in. They don't have any cameras, because the beautiful Michael Douglas has to be made beautiful, and so does Catherine's Eater's Eater, or whatever. The OK, or one of them, Hello, sneak in with a little Instamatic camera. They take all these pictures of little fat Michael Douglas fighting with the relatives, and, and Zeta Jones not looking beautiful and everything. And they produce all these pictures. And the case goes to... The Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal say, well, we weren't sure whether the Human Rights Act covered this kind of thing, but now we see Section 12, it must. Result, uh, celebrities have money, celebrities can brief lawyers, celebrities can prevent the publication of stories about themselves, and that's a big deal for a lot of these men that you mentioned, and I am convinced that part of the hostility to the Human Rights Act was commercial self-interest. Because as the media has exploded in its variety, and look at the Daily Mail in America, which is an online porno site, they have to, they have to slum it in gossip or fail, a lot of them. And the gossip is more difficult because of the Human Rights Act. Right. I think we've, before thirst overtakes uh, intellectual interrogation, I think we've got round, time for one more round. So, uh, gentlemen there, yourself, and then yourself, yes. Can I just see, is there anybody else who would like to ask a question besides those three? Um, or, right, one, two, three, four. Can we take yeah, those? We'll, I'll yeah, I'll right. yeah. Well, I'm going to draw the line on, on that. I so those ignore, three now, I... and then we'll have a grand finale with four. I'll yeah. be as short as I can, and I'll ignore some that are hard. <laughs> <laughs> Richard uh, ignore the ones you don't like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Richard Seaboam from Faith in Europe. That's not relevant to this question, which is simply a follow-up to the last one. What about Google knocking off all the past histories? <laughs> okay. Um, Peter Norton, uh, retired legal aid lawyer. Yeah. Um, you mentioned briefly in one of your answers the fundamental charter of uh, human rights. Could you perhaps talk a bit more about the relationship between that and the, the convention and the, the and re relationship between the fundamental charter and the British courts? Because I, I think that's going to create, create its own myths and fantasies in due course. Hello. Um, 
There was something on the news tonight, I don't know if people heard it, but it was a policy paper say, more or less saying that GCHQ could intercept communications between defendants and their lawyers and pass those to the prosecution. Um, any comment? Okay, I'll, I'll whiz through them because we want another four and people want... The gentleman might have left for the drink, but... Uh, the Google case, right to be forgotten, fascinating. I have a student who did a PhD in it and argued for it, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, but uh, I haven't got any defined view on it other than, uh, I guess, it's evidence of how the rights language finds expression in all sorts of flexible ways. Uh, the Charter is kind of very interesting. The Charter and the Convention... It's like Lord Denning used an incendiary term, though he didn't think of it at the time, as the incoming tide, you know, and it's now sometimes identified with sort of migration issues. But if you think about European Union as this tide of law and you try and control with your finger in the dike the convention, and then in comes this convention thing, the charter thing, and you can't control that, and then they all promised it wouldn't be part of law, and then you run off and you have a cup of tea, but you come back, water's pouring through because it is now law. And then you got rid of it, and then suddenly there are some general principles of constitutional law common to the member states, which is law. In other words, you can't stop it. And the it you can't stop is a judgment that there are common rights across the European arena which are going to be the floor beyond which no country can go without leaving it. And that is going to be a problem for anybody who wants a fully independent United Kingdom. And a lot of British people do want that, so the political cost of telling the truth is high. And if you go right back to Geoffrey Howe in 1972, I went through all the debates. He really was not as explicit as perhaps in a perfect world he would have been about the subservience to the European Court of Justice that flowed from it. Why was he not explicit? Because they wouldn't have got it through. Sometimes it's important not to be fully committed to transparency if you want to achieve change. So it's an interesting... Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a politician. <laughs> On GCHQ, very, uh, very quickly, the human rights thing insists that stuff is regulated by law. It's much more relaxed about what the law is. And there is a nice way in which the Convention's insistence on law has sometimes created more of the bad thing than existed before the law was put in place. And there is a little bit of that in the story to do with interception, which I don't have time to go into. I think it's lovely. All politics is deception. In effect, your summary, I think. Um, right, those four people who had their, their hands up. Yes, there and there were three, three over here. Hi. Um, hi, my name's Frank McGuinness. I'm training to be a barrister. Um, I am perhaps too young to represent the old left, uh, but I'll give it a, a shot because you did mention them in passing. Um, I guess what I would say is that the idea surely is that, you know, in the 70s you went to your trade union rep and he, or, I mean, it was probably he spoke the same language as you and more to the point had MPs in Parliament that he could apply pressure to. And what we now have is, um, you know, workers who have an employment tribunal and a judge that they can go to. And the point is that um, with the decimation of the power of trade unions, um, so too there's been a, a contingent decimation in the power to, to combat inequality. And the problem with rights talk is not that it isn't good for these negative civil liberties, but that it doesn't help you to resolve the kind of resource allocation, allocation questions that we used to do with trade unions and that human rights in a very real way serve to undermine. So I wonder what you think about that kind of slightly hackneyed left critique of human rights. Uh, 
Uh, there, were, there were three over here. I saw well, they diminished. Um, just one thing now. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, my name is Emil Tolerov. I'm a student here at LSE, and I'll try and keep it brief. Um, when it comes to bad human rights decisions in the English courts, uh, have you noticed any correlation between those and incumbent conservative governments? Or do you think that the problem is native to the judiciary? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, fine, thank you. Hi, I'm Andrew Fu from ANO. Um, I like your point about the Strasbourg fantasy, um, and I wonder if there's a hypocrisy here, because on the one hand, the British government's very concerned about Strasbourg judges taking, over, take, taking power from English judges. On the other hand, with the, with the current debate about TTIPs and investor-state disputes, um, Britain's quite keen and willing for um, these disputes to be governed by arbitral tribunals um, instead of national courts. And so on the one hand, it's saying, give more power back to us as English judges. And the, on the other hand, they're saying, no, we're happy for that power to go. Yeah. Just an observation. So yeah. if you don't want to deal with that question, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, do we have the fourth? Was there anybody There was else a lady there. Uh, I think there's a lady just there. Uh, yes, yes, thank you. I did That's see okay. that one. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm JC McIntosh. I'm currently, currently studying law and a human rights activist. Um, essentially, I think from, from what I understand, you've got the politicians on one side um, sort of going back on, their, on what they're saying and spreading some lies. On the other side, you've got the press out for um, commercial you know, benefits, uh, monetary benefits. And then the judiciary that's becoming, um, if not politicized, at least sort of going back um, and adopting the fantasies you talked about. Um, and so I'm guessing that the result is that we've got a hugely misinformed public um, and one that can't sort of make the right decisions. So I was wondering um, with whom you think um, the onus lies for um, helping sort of bring the public better, if not better information, but at least fuller information, um, and whether you see perhaps lawyers and the judiciary as taking that role um, more than uh, the, the politicians or, or perhaps even the press. Thank you. Uh, in reverse, I, I think... Uh we have to be a bit careful of lawyers too, you know. I mean, uh, we have to be careful about their claims about legal aid and the links it has to their own practice and so on. So I wouldn't necessarily count them. Uh, judges are very difficult. They're doing all these talks, and I've only used their talks, but they have to be very careful about this, really. I mean, all these talks. You know, now this is an academic speaking who feels get off our lawn, you know. We're the talkers. Uh, I, I do think it's difficult for politicians in the current climate where people here in this country hanker after and imagine Britain, and they are voters, those people. Uh, other Britons who don't hanker after it tend to be less likely to vote, so it's a big problem. Uh, I do think academics, actually, his boring answer, have a role here because we're not being elected by anybody. And I made my, le my lecture a bit more extreme than I wanted to in some ways because if we don't, who will? So I think teachers and academics who have secure positions should push it. Arbitration, perfect example, Andrew, of the contradictions in the British policy, to be both involved in free trade, to be engaged in international finance uh, on the one hand, and to be running this, uh, what English exceptionalist agenda on the other. The two don't fit. And it'll be interesting when, when, if it's true, as reported that Angela Merkel said, basically, you're out if you're going to insist on breaking up the free movement of people. What will happen when commercial opinion decides, actually, this has got serious enough now, pull yourself together, stop all this nonsense, uh, we need to stay in our international organisations because uh, human rights isn't just about Europe. Human rights is about the world, you know. Uh, I mean, I don't know, really. 
native to the judiciary, my guess. I don't think it's sensitive to particular political parties. We had it under Mr. Baker and Mr. Howard, but we also had it with Mr. Straw and Mr. Reid and so on and so forth. And to go back to where I started, the judges have done some good work standing up to the executive. I don't give the impression that I think none of the work is valuable. And Frank, yours stands as an intervention with which I agree and partly links back to Judy. I think the collapse of collectivism is uh, one of the main sources of inequality in today's life and the rising confidence of the rich who are less concerned now because they think they won't be challenged and human rights is the diversion of collectivist energies into the individual and of course the tribunals that you would now normally have gone to are now too expensive to access and the damages now are not worth going for so basically you can be sacked with impunity given a few quid and you'd be mad to go to a tribunal so basically we're reversing things but under cover of law. Right, well, uh, before I release you to the bibulous part of the evening, um, you'll be relieved to learn that I, I didn't abuse my position of chair by asking uh, details about the, the contrast between the interpretive and the purposive uh, approach to uh, leg legislation, uh, which I'm sure would have elicited a very interesting answer, but I'm uh, prepared to relinqu relinquish that in the interests of time. Um, I must tell you all that the next event here is going to be be on the 25th of November, where the Lord Chief Justice himself um, will actually come. It would be nice to be able to say the Lord Chief Justice herself one day, but there we are. It's another matter. Um, but, uh, so if you're interested in hearing the Lord Chief Justice, it's going to be here on the 25th of November. Uh, and finally, of course, I know I speak on behalf of you all when I say a very sincere thanks to Connor for a wonderfully provocative uh, innovative and opening up our thoughts to new approaches to these complex uh, matters uh, for a very, very incisive delivery uh, of, of, of your thoughts. Thank you so much indeed, uh, and thank you all for coming here.